Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Prism Podcast. We tell the stories that Hollywood won't. I am your host, Rodrigo Mariano, and across from me is Brendan Walker of 8mm and M Sports Magazine. Well, how are you doing today, man? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm psyched, to, I'm psyched to talk about all the movies I've seen in 2020, surprisingly, and all the mo- movies I haven't been able to see as a result of just the just batshit circumstances. Yeah, no, this this year has been super, super odd when it comes to movies. I didn't really find myself watching any 2020 movies for like the first half of the year, like at all. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. But like, it's so weird how people have been um, formulating their lists because there's so many different avenues you can go through. Like, I personally have not seen Nomadland, The Father or Minari, but I'm sure they would be on this list if I had seen them at this point. But here's yeah. also, this is the thing that I've been thinking about too, because they haven't been released in the United States, yet all of these publications have them on their 2020 list. That confuses me yeah. because I really do, like it, it kind of, uh, they're kind of on a pedestal because they have seen these movies, but they haven't been released like to accessible, like in an accessible way for any audience this year. And they come out in like February for Oscar eligibility. So it's, I don't know. I, I, don't, know, I don't really have like, it's just odd. The eligibility conversation is like really interesting regarding those because like, again, I'm, I'm the same way. I've been looking for, like, I, I remember I put out a tweet, like wondering to see where I could find Minari. And then a bunch of people said, just look for online screenings because a lot, they're like, I mean, they're like, uh, like film organizations that are showing them and stuff. And I haven't been able to find them. It's been the same with Nomad's Land. Um, I have not really, I actually, I completely forgot about The Father. That was really, yeah, I, I almost, I almost completely forgot about it because it's been such a crazy year. Although even like the theater going experience, I've been to a movie, I've been in a movie theater like twice this year. I saw Tenet in a movie theater. Love to talk about Tenet because I don't, I don't know if that makes my list a hundred percent, but um, I saw Tenet yeah, in a movie theater and just last week I saw Promising Young Woman in, really? uh, in a theater. Good oh. for you. Oh, Good yeah. for you. I, oh. <laughs> is it on your list? We can talk it about is it. On, oh, it is on my list. Absolutely. Okay. Should we just jump right in or? Uh, yeah, we're going to jump right in soon, but like, I, I really want to see Promising Young Woman. I really wanted to see it a few days ago, but I got a COVID scare in the family. So then we had to go test it and then I couldn't go out to see Promising Young Woman. And that would have been the third movie I would have seen since the pandemic started. What were the other two? The other two were actually, is it three? No, no, it's two. Um, I saw Trial of Chicago 7 and Tenet. I saw Trial of Chicago 7. Like that was the first... Even first movie, movie that I saw in a theater. Yeah. Thank you, Netflix, for actually releasing movies in theaters while other studios were in, which is so weird and ironic because they're like the they're the killer of movie theaters. Whatever. And it's interesting because like, I mean, there are so many theaters specifically that like pre-pandemic weren't necessarily willing to show Netflix films for like an extended run. Like I remember when Roma was around, it was in theaters for like maybe like two, three weekends and I couldn't find it anywhere to see in person. Yeah, it was dude. a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But here we are, like, seriously. Yeah. But um, to profess my, uh, my list, I have not watched Mangrove, First Cow, Promising Young Woman, and One Night in Miami. Those are the only ones that were released theatrically in 2020 that I could not put on my list because I have not seen them. But I'm sure, like, they would be on this list if not for yeah. me not watching them. I don't know if you have any movies like that, but. Um, so, I mean, so I, I mean, looking at my list in front of me, I do have I, I categories like movies that if I had seen, they probably would have been on this list in the two are Minari and um, Nomadland <laughs> um, in regards to when you were talking about Mangrove. Um, 
it's interesting because when you're looking at the lists and you're looking at Mangrove and you're looking at Smallox as a whole, it's interesting about whether or not you include Smallox as a collective entry on the list or you look at them individually. I kind of put put it down just collectively as Smallox because they were also good. I couldn't really pick. Yeah. Yeah, because pers- personally, this is just my opinion. I wouldn't do that because like the I, I based it off the way that they screened them in like the New York Film Festival and um, just TIFF. Like they just screened them individually. So I perceive them in my head as their own movies. They were just all released within the same same time span, but under the same franchise umbrella, if that makes sense. Yeah. So no, it's that like, that, that was just my perception of it. But, let, but let's get into this. I'm like super like excited just to talk about movies this year, even though yeah. it's been a, I wouldn't say it's been a dry year, it's just like it's just always fun to talk it's about just been top accessible. 10 lists. Yeah. Like there yeah. like there have been there's been good stuff around this year. It's just been impossible to find if they aren't in streaming services. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Okay. How about you start it off? Number so 10. I, um, so number 10, I would say so I, I figured I'd just get this off my chest. Um, 10 I couldn't really pick because I wanted to put Tenet on the list simply because <laughs> it was just the biggest thing released this year. But then as a um just as a film. I'm not even really that hot on it. I think it's mainly just on my list because it was the first thing I saw in a theater and it was just good to be in a movie theater again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we've talked about Tenet before. I think we have our different, we have our differences of opinion on it. I think like <laughs> it is just on a level of ambition that I've just haven't yeah. seen a movie in forever. I think it's just not like, okay, here's my thing. I am one of the <laughs> biggest Christopher Nolan fans around. I think you could ask pretty much anyone I know. It's just the problem is, is I think this film is so it's Nolan is indulging so much in his ideas and just his style of filmmaking and everything. And he goes so into it that it doesn't really like all click, but then when it clicks, it really clicks. Yeah. Um, I agree with a lot of sentiments with um, Tenet in general. I, I think it's a super ambitious film. It's literally right outside of my top 10. Yeah. I really like watching it and I really enjoy myself watching it. But it, it's just Christopher Nolan just like sucking his own dick, really. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's the, and it's I, fun to see. Yeah, it's just yeah. like, dude, like it. It's just He's, over. It doesn't really stick the landing on it, and in my opinion, personally. Yeah. It's like the most self-indulgent thing I think he's made since Interstellar, and Interstellar works. And you know what? That start like, I think. Okay, I'm thinking about this. There are two scenes specifically and like why I think it just makes my top 10. Number one, it's so big. And number two, the reverse hallway fight scene yeah. is was probably you, my favorite scene of the year. How do you I, direct I just that? don't even think it's close. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, yeah. I am a huge Christopher Nolan fan. It just like this movie lacks like the characters that he yeah. usually has in his movies, even though he does get slack for having like two dimensional characters in his other movies. I just feel like this lacks the... Yeah. Even like the Murph and Coop relationship or yeah. just a standout performance like Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception or just yeah. ideologies that we haven't seen before. Well, yeah. obviously, um, Tenet feels super fresh and stuff. Like, it just doesn't feel the level of Nolan that I feel he's um, set for himself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my number 10 is also like a movie that I just straight up love for entertainment purposes no real massive depth to it freaky i fucking love freaky freaky's so good in my opinion and vince vaughn is absolutely incredible i think he should be considered for like best actor in a musical or comedy because i don't know christopher landon just does something when he flips genres have you seen it 
I so I haven't seen Freaky. I remember seeing the trailer and being just absolutely engrossed by it. Just <laughs> Vince Vaughn is such a weird screen presence consistently because like the Vince Vaughn that I think you probably remember, like we probably remember from like ten or eleven or like you know the buddy comedies you see with Owen Wilson. And in like the past four or five years, he's just done all this super interesting stuff for the project. He's using <laughs> Freaky, like um, uh, what's it? Oh God, uh, North Hollywood, uh, which he's in. I don't know if you've seen. I've seen that. Yeah, so it's this, um, not to like go on a tangent or anything, but he's, uh, it's this interesting uh, skateboarding movie made by one of the producers of mid-90s and the guys who run Illegal Civ, the um, like film and skateboarding collective. And he's just so, and Vince Vaughn's in it. And the whole thing is, is he's just taken this really weird route with the roles he's picking compared to like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it's super awesome to see. And I didn't get a chance to see Freaky, but it looked incredible. Yeah, no, his performance is definitely the highlight of Freaky. And um, Christopher Landon's just a filmmaker that I've been looking at for a while now with Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day 2. They're just so campy and yeah. self-aware. And Freaky is just the best of the bunch because he knows how to flip genre. He knows how to revitalize it for a modern audiences and make it accessible to us. Like, I'm not huge on, like, old slasher movies. Not old, but, like, like 80s slasher movies. But Freaky just does something for me everything just clicks and it plays like a classic like yeah it's engrossing and scary and super super hilarious and the characters are great vince vaughn's great i'm just in love with this movie and it probably wouldn't be on this list if it were not for me not watching mangrove and promising young woman one night miami but i just wanted to put it in here because it deserves to be talked about so go yeah. ahead with your number nine. I'd say, so my number nine, I feel like it's a bit of an obvious inclusion just because, you know, just given the stuff that come out that has come out this year, it would be um, Borat's subsequent movie film starring, hey, uh, you know, dear lad, Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, <laughs> I really, I did not have any expectation for it going in simply because the first Borat, as, you know, goofy as it is, is just a really interesting piece of filmmaking, weirdly. But I think that, it came out at the perfect time, obviously, because, you know, it's centered around the election and everything. And it doesn't necessarily, like, it doesn't necessarily hit the same highs as the first one. But I think that the, like, direction it takes politically um, is just something that I hadn't really seen in movies in probably, like, two, three yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah, Sasha is incredible in that film. And I, what's her name? Maria Baklova? Yeah, she I think something like that, yeah. is the biggest surprise for like this whole entire year. No one saw that performance coming from anywhere. And the Rudy Giuliani scene absolutely floored me. Oh, like yeah, I can't believe the shit that they tried to pull off in this film. In a, and it's so weird because like they make Borat in Borat 2 and it's like a full cohesive story. But in it yeah. is so many like, it's a different kind of filmmaking for sure. And one that we will probably not try to achieve during our time as filmmakers or any of us that we know, really. It's just yeah. an ambitious feat that is pulled off effortlessly. I don't it's, know how they do it. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, when you, I, it's just, it's like the level of like, I, I don't know if you call it like, I wouldn't say like stunt filmmaking or whatever, but just the audacity to just go into crowds like this or just find regular people and just put them in these situations like, I just don't think there, I don't think there are that many people working in Hollywood today that number one, have the audacity to do that. Like Sasha exactly. Baron Cohen. And number two, I just can't imagine like 
something like this getting any like traditional studio backing at all just the amount of like legal challenge that comes with something like making something like this like if you go and read about like the ridiculous amount of lawsuits and legal challenges that just come yeah. with, like Sasha Baron Cohen from like the original Borat and then when he was on the Ali G show and then even just his other stuff it's insane like there's that one scene in Borat's subsequent movie film where he's in the cabin the COVID cabin and the thing uh, is I talked to a lot of people well some of my friends and they were like those had to be actors but the thing is they weren't Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. was literally in a cabin with two randos and created this narrative psychologically in them so that they could move the plot forward. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you convince people to just like be faux actors in your movie like in such a yeah. instrumental narrative way? Uh, it's ridiculous, dude. I'd, I'd say the other thing I just want to add before we move on is no one saw this movie coming either. I remember like <laughs> uh, the first mention of there even being a Borat 2 was, I think it was in July during the uh, scene where he goes on stage and he starts yeah. singing about the, just the ridiculously offensive song. That was the first mention that Sasha Baron Cohen was even working on a project at that point. And he managed to keep it under wraps this entire time, which I thought was insane. Just the, like the level of secrecy that came with making a film this absurd was just incredible. Props to Sasha Baron Cohen. He, he's had a good year too. And yeah, I don't know if Charles Chicago 7 is on your list, but it's on mine. I haven't seen it actually. Um, Interesting. I still need to. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that later then. Right. Well, my number nine is um, a classic movie that I did see in February in a movie theater. Probably one of the last movies that I saw in the theater, but The Invisible Man. This was also one of the biggest surprises of the year for me because I didn't really... Lee Winnell is hit or miss for me. He did mm-hmm. like some of the Insidious movies and, but Upgrade was really, really fantastic. And he knows how to move the camera. He has a great eye and he's just a really talented director. And this movie proves that 100%. Like everything just clicks in this movie. The performances, even like down to the production design, it's terrifying in the way that they use the Invisible Man IP and repurpose it to today's like era and um the me too movement is so interesting and provides such a contrast to um the dark universe thing that universal tried to do yeah um with the mummy so i i I really love this movie i see i think the two things that i really took away from this movie number one uh, elizabeth moss has to be one of the greatest perform like one of the greatest performers working today i have not seen uh handmaid's tale all the way through um and i'm a huge madman fan so those are the two things i really know her from i'd never really seen her in anything besides this and just the range with a like first off the premise itself is like just it's it's bonkers um it's bonkers and just to see her craft this incredible performance with so much depth around a premise this bonkers was just awesome also the behind the scenes footage that you see from that scene uh the kitchen scene where when her husband first like reappears is just incredible like the amount of like incredible effects work that went in for this movie like i don't really when i see jason bloom's name attached to a movie i'm not my expectations are particularly <laughs> high like i mean again this is the so he produced the invisible man the invisible man but you we also got you know um Blumhouse's fantasy island this year like i never yeah, really know seriously. what to expect when i see a Blumhouse's name attached to something but Typically, you you get interesting stuff like this for like one out of every three. Yeah, uh, I feel like Jason Blum knows how to prioritize and knows what to prioritize. Um, he knows what makes money too, and that, yeah. that's why he's one of the most, uh, I would say, well-regarded producers in the industry. Just because he just makes the bank. Like, yeah. 
even not the invisible man but freaky too he just ah dude th- yeah this man um can take as many risks as he wants because these budgets are just so small and it's yeah. actually incredible to see what they do with like a budget under 10 million both of these movies so yeah. props to like jason blum in general do you know he also um produced whiplash yes i did funny. yeah that's crazy i think he um he yeah he's produced a lot of really well regard i think the i think and like a black clansman right yeah (laughs) he i think the whole thing is i from what it seems like to me is he uses like these more like i i wouldn't say schlocky because the invisible man is anything but schlocky but you know stuff like fantasy island again cannot (laughs) i I, it's just all coming back to me now that is the last movie i saw in a movie theater prior to the pandemic was fantasy island no no (laughs) i know just horrible but I my notion is, is I think he kind of uses these films to make the bank and then kind of produce what he really wants to the stuff like Whiplash the stuff like Black Landsman. um so yeah good for him man good for yeah. him the last movie that I saw um in the theater was The Way Back that was my last one. Oh, okay no solid solid so your number eight um so my number eight kind of sticking with the um notion of like me too type focused films so i know a lot of people have seen the assistant this year i haven't i've heard really good things about it though um, my number either. eight yeah my number eight is actually a pretty recent inclusion um which is promising young woman uh which is emerald fennel's uh i think yeah her film debut and it was also produced by margot robbie and i will just say i haven't seen anything that is like grabbed me by the throat like this heavily in terms of like regarding talk, like talking about the subject and everything. It's like the script itself is just one of the, like it deals with um, it's, it's an incredible PSA about, you know, dating culture, like modern dating culture and just modern like hookup culture as well. Um, And just, you know, the dangers that come with that, but also I just haven't read a script that manages to be this um, impactful, but also just so funny in such a dark way. Um, and Carrie Mulligan, who I'm not typically a fan of from what I've seen her in, um, she's really good in uh, Wildlife, which was directed by Paul Dano a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, she is a powerhouse in this movie. Also, yeah. this is the first thing I've seen Bo Burnham in in a really long time. And he's <laughs> great. Like he's playing, um, he's playing kind of, he plays with type with his performance. He, he's definitely not the focus of the movie. Obviously it's Carrie Mulligan, but it's just such a weird combination of a script that is just super punchy. Um, a director that really knows what she's doing. Emerald, uh, Emerald Fennel is next up. I cannot wait to see what she makes next. And also um, something just this funny um, talking about such a complex subject matter. Oh, dude, I want to see this movie so bad. Oh, like, yeah. I keep on hearing such great things about this movie and you just pumped my um, anticipation up like 10 levels. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. So my number eight is... Um, the Five Bloods, Spike Lee's uh, Vietnam epic. It just feels so grand. And um, I just kind of want to take a moment to um, rest in oh. peace, Chadwick Boseman, dude. Yeah. He's absolutely incredible with like the, um, the time that he has in this movie. And it's crazy because I held off on seeing this movie when it first came out. And then Chadwick Boseman died. And then I held off again because I, like, I wasn't ready to see his final no. performance. So just one day, like a a week ago, I decided to watch The Five Bloods and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom back to back. And dude, like, he's just a powerhouse of an actor. And this shit was just scratching the surface, too. Yeah. Like, he had so much to give. Give, dude. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Such an incredible performer. For real. Um, 
I know for me, I actually have the five bloods as my number one of the year. I was really, I, my, so my whole thing with Spike Lee is since, uh, since the nineties, he just hasn't had two films. Like he, like, I don't think he can make two, like knock it out of the parks back to yeah. back. It just hasn't really happened. Like you get something, um, like you got game, but then you also get some, yeah, you just don't get, you get something like the old boy remake. Like you never really know what you're getting with Spike Lee, but this is like the first time in a really long time where I've just seen two Spike Lee movies like just that he's made back to back that just hit like this. And also the, in addition to Chadwick Boseman, Delroy Lindo would be my incredible for, uh, performance of the year. I, I, I thought that earlier in the year, he'd be uh, much, a much bigger presence in the conversation for best actor at this year's Oscars. I think that might've been a consequence of it coming out in like June. I still think it des- it deserves a much bigger space in the awards conversation than I'm seeing it get currently. Um, and Lindo's a guy I hadn't really, I'd seen him in supporting roles and other yeah, exactly. uh, Spike Lee projects. And he just shows up and kills it here, just out of the park. And then also I forget the, um, he, he brings back some of the Black Landsman cast. I forget the name of like one of the white supremacist guys. I forget yeah, dude. the, um, well, uh, Paul Walter Hauser, who <laughs> is in this movie for like 20 minutes and also just kills it. Oh my God. The whole cast in this movie is pretty incredible. And Spike Lee directs with such style and just yeah. like, I don't know. It feels so epic, even though it's just a movie about yeah. people walking in a jungle. It really feels like a war movie and it has that yeah. scale psychologically. I just don't know how he pulls it off. It's incredible. I know all the other two th- other big takeaways from this movie is I really liked the sort like his, uh, the way he would intercut documentary footage or like actual, like the way he would cut like documentary type B roll um, whenever he was talking about something significant to black history. Um, like I, I forget the scene where, uh, Jonathan Major's character is like on top of a landmine and uh, Delroy Lindo, who plays his father, is like screaming at him, like, think like the sprinter, think like the sprinter, like this Olympic sprinter that went to uh, Morehouse College. Yeah. And you inter- it intercuts with like footage of him like sprinting. And then you see him like sprint away from the landmine and just make it out just barely. Also, Jonathan Majors, just ab- jo- Jonathan Majors has just <laughs> had such a killer two years. Like, again, I shouldn't be spending so much time talking about like image of performance. This is like, you know, best movies of the year after all. But like, he kills it in this. He killed it in Last Black, uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. And oh my God, he's just such a just mountain of talent. Yeah, I can't wait to see what he does next. He's definitely like yeah. one to watch and a big star. Yeah. And, and will be a big star going forward. I know his um his next project, not to continue tangenting, but his he's working on a Western with Lakeith Stanfield for Netflix. Um, no way. Which, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. dope. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's your, um, what's your, wait, are, are we on number eight? Number eight, eight yeah. So, um, so The Five Bloods was my, I had as my best movie of the year. Um, I had uh, number eight uh, was a film called Another Round uh, starring Mads Mikkelsen. I saw that movie. One of the, I think one of the uh, most surprising things I've seen out of the year, I have a friend who's much more into foreign film than I am. Uh, and he's a really big Mad, Mads Mikkelsen fan. And he told me to check out this movie about a month ago. And I finally did like two weeks ago. And I... Genuinely, so Mads Mikkelsen, I only really knew from his part in Rogue One and on Hannibal. I just hadn't really seen him in that much stuff. Also, you know, he's he's great in Casino Royale. Like in terms of like the American films he's in, he's typically playing villains. But in this, he's playing um, the whole uh, premise. I don't know how you really explain this movie. So Mads Mikkelsen plays a school teacher and him and his friends are all um, just sitting around drinking. And there's a, um, I forget the name of the, I forget the name of the European philosopher. Uh, basically, and they uh, they start discussing that there's this philosopher that was basically like, oh yeah, you become like more creative and more productive with like a 0.5 blood alcohol level. 
So yeah. the whole movie is basically about him and his friends drinking at work for the sake of a social experiment. And it just gets so crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. I really, really do love this movie. It's not on my list. It's like right outside of my top 10. Yeah. But Mads Mikkelsen's performance is bonkers. Everything in this movie is just so elevated and over the top. I love seeing just this cast just stumble around drunk yeah. all the time. And like, oh my God, the final five minutes of this movie where uh, the sequence, um, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm it's not just gonna, I'm not so absolutely crazy. That dancing scene, man. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like euphoria, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but this was also one of um, the big surprises of the year for me. And it's just odd because Mad M- Mads Mikkelsen has never been nominated for an Oscar. Really? Yeah. Dang. After watching this movie, I went on his IMDb and I was just like, why wasn't he nominated? Not even for like a Golden Globe or anything. No SAG, yeah. no anything. Yeah. yeah, he is regarded as one of the best actors. like Of our time. Yeah. Yeah. So props to him, really. I feel like at one point he should like venture out and just try to go for the Oscar. He hasn't been really doing that. He gives no. He probably gives no shit about awards. Oh, absolutely. But like not. he should yeah. definitely like. I don't know. Just because we, if he just even tried to pursue that, it would be game over for everyone. Yeah. Like we all know this. Um. But, so what do you have as your uh, what do you have as your number seven? My number seven is the trial of the Chicago seven. So yeah, uh, we talked about this before, but this was my first movie that I saw in theaters after the whole entire like pandemic or it's still during the pandemic. But when I walked into the theater, I, Oh yeah, I shed a tear (laughs) because I was finally (laughs) back. But besides that, the movie was absolutely incredible and Aaron Sorkin's screenplay is 100% in my opinion the best of the year just so snappy and like informative this trial is absolutely infuriating yeah but it plays so much like a crowd pleaser and the whole cast is just amazing you got Sasha Baron Cohen Joseph Gordon-Levitt Eddie Redmayne like with the American Michael Keaton yeah with the American accent and he pulls it off too Jeremy Strong like Jeez. I um so I have not seen the trial of Chicago Seven. It's been on my list. I just haven't gotten around to it. But I remember seeing that trailer. I think that first trailer came out in September. And like Eddie Redmayne's American accent is kind <laughs> of full. Like I was thoroughly surprised. It's flawless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he, he's really great in the movie. The whole cast is great. I, I could even see like all of them. Um like the whole entire best supporting actor category at the Oscars being just actors from the trial of Chicago Seven. But I do have some gripes with the movie. It is like the best screenplay of the year, but Sorkin isn't 100% there when it comes As to directing yet. Yeah. But it is far better direction than Molly's Game, that's for sure. Oh, really? I'm, a, I'm actually a huge fan of Molly's Game. Really? Oh, I love Molly's Game. It kind of feels like the Mo- Molly's Game kind of feels like a more crime focused big short to me. And that's why I think I like it so much. And I know his directing isn't like all the way there, but just. Oh God, I I love that movie so much. Yeah. He's gonna get there eventually, I, I'm sure. Yeah. And there are signs of that in this movie, but he's not 100 percent there yet. Yeah. yeah. But the screenplay is bonkers, and I'm just been a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin forever. West Wing, like The Social Network, this guy just knocks it out of the park every time when he writes shit. And I really, really love Steve Jobs as well. I don't know your opinion on that movie, but Aaron Sorkin's oh, a piece. That's it. I think we've had this conversation before. Again, not to keep getting off topic, but I think <laughs> Jobs is maybe the best thing that Aaron Sorkin's ever written. I I'm in love with that movie 
just completely. Yeah, just a fusion of Danny Boyle's like direction and Aaron Sorkin's screenplay in yeah. the structure. Oh my god. Oh god, yeah. Um I need to watch that movie again. It's just such a vibe. And Daniel Pemberton's score in that movie is A1. <laughs> I think weirdly, like this year, um, like just as you're sitting at home, you're stuck, like stuck at home, you're just looking for stuff to watch. I think I've watched Steve Jobs at least three times just to like really study that screenplay and just understand how it functioned. Also, just because Fassbender and Sorkin is just a pairing I would have never really thought of, and it works that is so just true. flawlessly. Like, Jesus. Yeah. I'll get off topic, but Fassbender needs to get like a new agent or something. Oh, God. Yeah. That's, um, I think, what's the <laughs> last thing I saw him? Was, the last thing I saw him when, wasn't X Men Apocalypse? It was this lovely film called The Snowman based on a, I think, like a Swedish mystery novel. Might be one of the worst things I've ever seen. Lovely post plastic surgery Val Kilmer appearance as well. Oh God! Oh my Jesus. God! Yeah, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. Yeah, he, it's um, so awful, dude. He's the like one of the best actors working like in he, general. The thing with Fassbender, I've always seen it is like, um, it's weird because okay, so I think like 2010 to like 2016, he had maybe like one of the best runs as an actor ever. But, yeah. Uh, without not with no Oscar to show for it, but then even like before that, he's just like prior to like his whole big run and everything. Uh, well, actually, you know what he needs to do is he needs to work with um, Steve McQueen again. That's how he can oh, get yeah. back on track. Oh my God. I watched, cause I rewatched hunger a couple weeks ago, which is, I think maybe, maybe I oh, actually, I don't know if it's the best performance of his career, but just the, Oh God, he, he needs a new agent. That that's, just that's the word. Agent. That's the word. You heard it. Here first. <laughs> yeah. Alien covenant, the snowman, dark Phoenix, um, Kung Fury 2. No diss to Kung Fury 2, but like, dude, like, who's your agent? What's going on here? Oh, it's just so like all over the place. Eclectic, yeah. That's the only word. Oh my God. Oh, he's working with um, Taika on his next movie. Oh. I might get him back on track. So, okay. first movie in yeah. five years that's actually worth like. Yeah. I think in, he's I also taken up like, he's like, um, I think he's like taken up like Formula One racing or something. Like, I know he's oh, God. Like, <laughs> doing like race car stuff. I don't know. I feel like. Jesus. Um, so just moving on, I, so from, moving on from just a lovely little departure uh, from the conversation. My number seven of the year was a film that uh, you said you hadn't seen. It was First Cow, just because. Um, so I'd never really been familiar with Kelly Rickdart, Kelly Rickdart's style and Kelly Rickdart's filmography until my friend uh, Mitch, shout out Mitch, um, really got me into uh, Rickdart when he just mentioned First Cow to me. And I haven't seen something just so... Um, so in like i haven't seen anything aside from like portrait which i saw this year which i we're not counting as a 2020 movie i haven't seen something so like just lovely and intimate in such a really long time interesting kelly, kelly rickdart's a filmmaker that i think deserves way more shine than she actually has she's just been quietly working independent film for the past uh 20 or 30 years and more specifically uh john john mcgarrow i think that's how you say his name he i so he's a guy that i remember as like the he was in the big short he's been in a lot of like random tv he was, I thought he, he just seemed kind of throwaway. And then the way that Rick Dart uses him in this and just the way that the script utilizes him is just something I wasn't expecting at all. And I, I don't think he'll get much shine for best actor, but it's a really sneaky, it's a, it's a very sneaky and subtle, but just really good performance. I really want to see First Cow and I keep on hearing um, great things about that movie. Uh, I'll probably put it on sometime this week, but from what I've heard, it's, it's great. 
it what, what's it even about is that a spoiler or? um okay so i don't know how to so kind of how you uh, how i explain this is so uh john mcgarrow plays this guy who wants to be a baker and he's sort of like living <laughs> he's living in rural oregon i think it's like the 18 it's the 1800s of, uh, at the time and he has this dream of opening a bakery and basically um so he knows how to bake but he doesn't have any dairy because at this time like this is his oregon's like first getting settled there just isn't that much like you know there isn't that much around but there's one cow in the area. Um, there's one cow owned by this really rich dude. So him um, and this uh, uh, guy he meet basically start like trying to like steal the milk pretty much. Like they start like lifting milk from this cow essentially in order to make biscuits. And then it becomes this whole like just really, it's this, it's a, it's a movie. Like it's a, it's a type of movie that it's just, I, I'm sorry. I just don't really have, I don't really have words. To it's just, it's, it's just really lovely. Like I haven't seen anything that like quiet and lovely, like all year. Like, I think like most of the mo- movies in my top 10 are like some, like they all have something to say. And first cow definitely has something to say, but it's just, it's, it's just quiet. I don't, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So are we at number six now? Yes. Okay. So my number six is Cooper Rafe's shit house. Have you seen that movie? I have not. Um, that is a hell of a name though. Yeah. So, so Cooper Rafe Shithouse is just about this kid who goes to college. He has one night with this chick and shit goes sideways after that. But I don't know. When I watched this movie, I had a pretty deep personal connection to it, not only because it's relatable from a college student standpoint, but this dude, Cooper Rafe was like 22 when he directed this movie straight out of college. And not only could I see myself in the characters, I saw myself in from the filmmaking perspective. And that inspired me hella. I kept on reading like interviews. I kept on reading, like I rewatched the movie again and I'm just thoroughly inspired by this work ethic and everything. So he makes this movie straight out of college, submits it to South by it wins the grand jury prize. Oh, dear. that's the craziest thing. Like yeah. it's so inspiring this whole entire journey, but not only is the journey inspiring, just the, just the movie really nails the vulnerability of college students, the freshman experience, and the screenplay is just so tight. And like you said about First Cow, I haven't seen First Cow, but like it, it feels so lovable and you just want to hug it. And yeah, yeah, it, it's just an inspiring movie from all perspectives and all contexts, yeah. really. I think yeah. you should really see it. It's just pretty simple coming of age movie like micro budget as fuck, probably less than 20. Oh, 000. I love it. I dig. But I don't know. Like, this is something that I see myself making if I was like a filmmaker at that stage. And it's just like interesting to see what people make at that point. Yeah. I also watched like, um, have you seen Banana Split? That's another coming of age movie where I was like inspired by the filmmaking not, just yeah. based on like the context because the um, the writer direct, the writer, Hannah Marks is, starring and like writing it at like the same age of like oh, 22 i'm like wow dude i want to make something at 22 i want to make something yeah. as authentic and grounded and relatable at that age and it, i don't know it's just incredible in that sense and cooper rafe really like nails it he directs produces stars in it wrote it like dude what a grind what a grind yeah. and yeah, it just all works. I do have some gripes with like the epilogue at the end because it kind of like, it's too, it's, 
it's sappy and corny but that's beside the point like the the rest of the movie is pretty incredible i re- really do adore this movie i'm i'm 1000 gonna see it now that sounds lovely um i will say so my um i what number are we on now i think it's six. I think we're on five we're on six okay. are you on six or yes yes i think i'm on, I'm on <laughs> six yeah okay um so i think my so my number six i had um oh, what did i have Oh yeah. So number six, I had small X because I couldn't pick which one to, if I had to pick one uh, from small X, I know uh, this is, I don't know if this is a hotter take just because I know it didn't get as much love from critics compared to the uh, other ones, but red, white, and blue, I think was my favorite. of Okay. Them all. I'll add that to the watch list because that's yeah, not on it's, my um, list. It's definitely the, I, it, first off, John Boyega, I'm so glad that post Star Wars, he's just actually getting to take roles that are more authentic to him. Like if mm. you've heard everything that he's talked about, like his gripes with Disney and everything. Yeah his just whole social voice and his whole just social presence is just incredible. And so I don't know, are you familiar with the premise at all? No, it has to do with police, right? Yeah. So basically, so John Boyega uh, plays the son of Caribbean immigrants in the UK. And I think it's the 1980s. And the whole thing is, is so he um, basically his dad is attacked by police. And so he sort of uh, ends up getting this notion that he wants to go change things from the inside and becomes a police officer. And it turns into this really, really complex commentary on like the police presence in Britain, just because I feel like whenever we talk about like uh, police presence in film and police brutality as a topic, we generally think about it in the context mm-hmm. of the American politics, um, the American public consciousness. It's very rare that you really hear it talked about um, in Britain. And it's interesting because it, you, you can kind of tell it's going to go sideways, like really fast in the way that, um, you know, just socially. Um, but Boyega delivers maybe the best performance of his career. Um, and it's just, it's so, I, the word it's, it's so raw to his, it's so raw to his own experience. It's, it's so raw to his own experiences, the character's own experience as a black man sort of grappling with the fact that um, once he becomes a police officer, his own community isn't necessarily looking at it the same way. And he ends up resenting his own profession as a result. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's, so it's definitely a bit, it's a bit grittier than Mangrove and Love Rock, uh, Lover's Rock, obviously, but I think it, it's maybe the, it has the most important story to tell of uh, of the Small X anthology. Yeah, Stephen um, McQueen really outdid himself just in general yeah. taking on this project because obviously it's so vast and like yeah. grand. And I've really been missing Steve McQueen since like yeah. Widows. Yeah. Oh God, w- Widows. That's I. I think that's how one of the first reasons we started talking to each other is just the mutual appreciation for a movie that did not get nearly enough love the year it came out um widows is absolutely killer if you haven't seen it oh my god yeah absolutely incredible and the cinematography in that movie is just like who does the cinematography for like steve mcqueen's movies i know he (laughs) i gotta check this i gotta check this um is it Sean, Sean, Bobbitt. Uh, Sean Bobbitt, who's worked with McQueen his entire career. There is a single scene in Widows. It's like, I, I think oh you remember, it's the, um, it's the car scene. It's the one where you yeah. see Colin Farrell driving from the campaign meeting um, back to his house and he's in the same district and you sort of see like the dichotomy of the different like economic sides of Chicago. And he's having this incredibly insensitive conversation with his wife about his um, competitor in the election. Um, oh my God, it's just, Steve McQueen, like when Steve McQueen is firing on all cylinders, he's, he's actually like given space to create. He's so hard. Um, and he shows that he shows that um, in Red, White. Because also I the reason why I think I like Red, White and Blue so much is it takes a lot of the same 
themes that he kind of examined in Widows and just looks at it from a slightly different, like more law enforcement focused perspective. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Love is Rock is right outside of my top 10. It didn't exactly reach my top 10, but uh, Stu McQueen is just so talented and, and Love is Rock is so intimate and also feels just lovely. Yeah. And I'm Leticia, just glad that he took this on. Yeah, I was going to say, um, watch Mangrove when you get the chance just because Letitia Wright is just absolutely killer. I think it's it's just really awesome to see Steve McQueen get like, because so, it's it's an amalgamation of like probably Britain's like best young acting talent in a way that I just haven't really seen in the past few years. And the fact that Steve McQueen actually managed to get, I think it was because it's Amazon's distributing it, but he did it through the BBC, if I'm yeah. correct. And the fact that he even got the BBC to basically bite and he was just like, I want to make like four or five movies that are all like <laughs> two hours long, screen them at a film festival and then distribute them like a TV series. It's, um, it's, it's distribution. Like I haven't really seen before. And it's also just uh, like format. I haven't really ever seen before uh, from a filmmaker in a really long time. Yeah. Um, and creative yeah. freedom for like a black artist. That's incredible. Yeah, like exactly. seeing what artists could do like with that freedom is so great to yeah. see. Yeah. So my number five, um, Eliza Hitman's never rarely, sometimes always was one that really hit for me. Um, a personal story about, a girl in Pennsylvania having to go out of the way to get an abortion in New York City. Obviously super sensitive subject when it comes to this movie. And Eliza Hitman just hits it with such intimacy and, and care. And what I really, really respect about this movie is its use of silence and lack of dialogue. Have you seen this movie? Um, I haven't. I, I've, this is another movie that I haven't really, um, is it on streaming? Um, I think it's on HBO Max, but yeah, it's just I'm gonna, so... I'm going to have to keep that, yeah. Uh, the performances are so, like, subtle and yeah. subdued, and it just approaches the the subject of abortion so carefully. It's not preachy. It It's just raw, and this is what happens. And that's the most tragic thing. Yeah. This could be anyone. This could be anyone taking yeah. this journey because they don't have the resources, like... Mm-hmm at their disposal and it's super empathetic and i don't know it's it's not telling anyone what to think it's just it just is and that's the most tragic part about it really yeah i remember seeing this movie get a bunch of i think it was did screen at sundance first am i screened at sundance yeah i remember seeing this because it was one of the I i think it was like one of the last movies that was in theaters in 2020 um or it might like i or it didn't quite make the theatrical release i don't remember i remember seeing a bunch of press about this movie in early March and really wanted to see it. And then kind it kind of like falling through the cracks for me just because of everything that was going on. But after everything you've just said, I I'm probably going to go watch it tonight. Like, yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Like the direction is absolutely a sight to behold really. So where are we right now? You're number five. Um, yeah, I think I'm at, uh, I think I'm at number five. I had, um, so I have Palm Springs at number five, which okay. is just, Oh my God. I don't, did you, that's see my Palm number Springs? one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It, I, it was really tough. This next like five were really tough for me. Um, but it is genuinely one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Um, I remember, I think my, my roommate put it best when he just kind of described it. it. It's basically horny groundhog day <laughs> way possible. Um, and I, I don't, okay. I don't know how to put this in the words. It's, it's so inventive because it takes the whole like uh, same day over and over again premise and just does so much interesting stuff with it. And 
Um, Kristen Milioti specifically is a person I've loved since I've seen her in How Much Your Mother. And I think yeah. she in, uh, I think she was in the film version or the Broadway version of, I think it was either, I think it was once, not Rent, I think it was once. And she's just absolutely killer. And I haven't really gotten to see her in anything um, in probably like four or five years. And she comes back with this. And it's, yeah. again, maybe one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Like literally this movie plays like a classic and I, I don't use that loosely. And it's so, yeah. came out at the right time. It's probably yeah. the most relevant movie for the widest audience because they're living the same day over and over again while we're living the same day over and over, over, again, and over again, not knowing what to do with ourselves and not knowing how to get out of it. And it's just so interesting. You, you said um, about flipping the trope, but also what they do with the characters within that trope, like specifically yeah. the J.K. Simmons character. Oh my God. I love oh, what they do with him. The murder scenes are just incredible. Oh my God. So, it's so inventive and funny. And we thought we played out this trope by now. We thought we've done everything we could with the Groundhog Day yeah. like idea. But there's the way that uh, the screenplay is just so inventive. And Andy Samberg just low-key has really good taste in projects. Yeah. Like, I, I, that's yeah. so understated, I feel like. Pop star. Say, he produced Brigsby Bear. I love, I fucking love Brigsby Bear. I didn't Bear. know. We, like, oh, yeah, because that's a, that, that, that whole production was super SNL heavy. I never knew he produced that. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Like, they low-key know how to pick projects. And it's incredible. Yeah. Like, I love Palm Springs so much just because how relevant it is and how just fucking funny and bonkers it gets with the premise. And just the fact that it takes place the one day that they relive over and over is like someone else's wedding. And yeah. how they play on that is great too. Jeez. I know. Oh um, my God. I, and like the revelations that they reveal to each other throughout the movie. Oh my yeah. God. I, I need to watch the, it again. The couple things, I think I had a couple takeaways from this movie. Number one, very like significant movie in the history, like in, uh, in the context of festivals. Cause I think it's the biggest Sundance acquisition ever. I think Hulu, Hulu and Neon, cause it are, I think it's, it's Neon produced and then Hulu, um, acquired exclusive distribution rights for almost, I think it was like $25 million, which is yeah. like unheard of for like something that I think it, um, I don't know if it, cause, oh yeah. Cause South by got canceled this year. I forgot about that. Cause yeah. I, I think it was going to sc- get screened at South by, um, uh, but that, that was going to be, it's like it's first widescreen, but it's screened at Sundance Hulu come in with tw- again, $25 million for a festival film is just unheard of. And I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, this has to be something if uh, like streaming services are willing to get into that big of a bidding, bidding war. Um, I am, I think the other thing I think I really took away from this movie is Andy Samberg's also just a much more dynamic actor that like, I mean, he's dynamic in terms of the comedy he does, but like I just as an actor, wow. Like I want to see him yeah, do seriously. some more. I want to see him do more stuff like this and maybe stuff that's a little bit more dramatic. I think I have this theory with, I have this theory with comedians. And I think the reason why comedians transfer so well to dramatic acting is because since comedy is all about timing, I think that that ability to just time the right beat, the right emotion just transfers so well to more dramatic acting. And I think if, you know, he worked with like, I don't know, just thinking on the top of my head, like I'd want to see like Andy Samberg and like Steven Soderbergh work together. I think that'd be killer. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought about Andy Samberg in that context before. Yeah. He could do absolutely like Anything. insane stuff. Yeah. With like the right people. Yeah. But I also just can't wait to see like more projects like this in general that yeah. feel like this, that is, are this tone, like brings me bear in this, like they could create so much great stuff, like the lonely yeah. Island team. And like, I don't know. I absolutely adore this movie so much, so much, dude. Yeah. 
So was that your number four? Was that... I think that was my number four, yeah. Okay. So my number four is um, The Sound of Metal. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I almost completely forgot about that one. Oh, my God. That sound design. Oh, yeah. So, so this is Darius Martyr's feature debut film. And it, it fires on all cylinders, really. The sound design, like you mentioned, like, did you watch it with headphones? I did. It's the only way oh to watch it. Oh my god! Yeah, and it, it, it's probably better than a movie theater, really, because you actually feel like the depth of being a deaf person and having that disability with the the sound design is off the charts and probably like the best sound design that I've heard like this decade, this past decade, really. But really, like how they portray the deaf community and how they tell the story and Riz Ahmed's performance is yeah. worth the price of admission even though we couldn't even see this with the price of admission like regardless yeah. oh my god incredible performances all around like incredible story super intimate and takes its time with the subject in a way that is empathetic and like personable uh paul racy um the the supporting actor the one in the deaf community mm-hmm. absolutely like heartbreaking in this scene too. Yeah. in this movie too like yeah it's so crazy giving like these deaf actors the opportunity to act in features like these and just absolutely kill it. It's some, wow. it's just something that like um, just, you know, not like to make it seem like super ableist or anything, but just like the fact that a lot of the times you see these movies get cast and directors are just too hesitant to actually cast deaf actors because they think like, Oh, it's going to be like a pain in the ass when it really isn't. Um, but the way that this, the, what this does for the deaf community as well as just like, the sound design, if you've never really like ever read about hearing loss or anything like that, the way that that experience comes in when you're watching headphones is unlike anything I think I've ever experienced watching anything. Um, also, Rizam Med has just been quietly one of my favorite actors of the past 10 years just because of all the uh, projects he's done. And this just mm-hmm. continues in the trend of him doing like really just weird and interesting stuff. I know, I think the last thing I remember seeing him in, sadly, is Venom. So it was nice to like, it was nice to see him just return to doing like smaller, much more interesting stuff. I mean, not to say Venom is interesting. It's just interesting in a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like four lines is killer. Yeah. Definitely one of the most interesting actors for sure. And he was in like, wasn't he Jason Bourne? He was in jail yeah, because the whole thing is, is so like every single, the thing with Rizzo Matty, he's done so many interesting, small, independent things, but every single time he's done big things, like he was in, he was in Rogue One. He's pretty good yeah. in Rogue One. He's in Rogue One for like 20, 30 minutes. Um, he's in Jason Bourne for like, then again, he's like, you gotta remember Jason, Jason Bourne is Bourne. also a strange movie. Yeah. You gotta remember is that every other actor, it's not Matt Damon carrying that movie. It's every other actor that actually gets dialogue. I think, um, I think I read somewhere that Matt Damon has like 23 lines in that entire movie. Jesus. And the whole thing is, is like, whenever you see anyone that isn't like Matt Damon on screen, um, they're the only ones talking and you can kind of see like the weaknesses in that movie's writing, even though Paul, even though Greengrass wrote it. Um, and it's just, his smaller stuff is excellent. It's just every single time he's leapt to bigger budget, like franchise filmmaking, it hasn't always like hit per se, but he's really good in Rogue One for sure. Yeah. Okay. So what are we on to now? You're number four. Um, yeah, right. So mine, is yeah, that where we um, are? I think <laughs> number four, number three. I, I, I forget about it. I had Mank um, as my next movie. Um, Interesting. I, so the whole thing is, is I was actually, 
I had I didn't even have I, I think probably about a month ago when I first watched it I didn't even have it in my top 10 I've since rewatched it um this movie just has a I have a weird connection with this movie just because I had I took a stage design class in high school and I remember um when looking at scene and everything my teacher made us watch Citizen Kane I think it was like over the course of a year probably two to three times over like Week, no way worth of class periods so i when i first watched this movie i didn't know if i was like i like i was worried that i wouldn't be able to stand it just because i have this just annoyance linked with uh citizen kane even though you know it's still one of the greatest movies of all time it's just not really that fun when you've watched it like three times in two <laughs> months considering it's like almost three hours long but um fincher this comes comes from a script that fincher's father wrote if i'm correct before he died so this is a passion project with fincher's and you can tell he has so much emotional investment in telling the story and the whole um everything that happens with uh, herman j mankowitz is just really conducive to fincher's own career and the way that he's sort of fought studios over the years and how he's kind of always stuck stuck up for like the artist's voice above all else um and i think so i think the movie has a lot of really good commentary on like the current studio system in connection to the stuff that uh, Mank went through in terms of like trying to even get credit for, uh, you know, the movie that he wrote that he didn't get the credit for, for almost 50, 60 years. Um, and yeah, also Amanda Seyfried, I think is going to be a really big favorite for the best actress category. I don't know about, I don't know about Oldman. Um, I'm, I've always, I, Gary Oldman's just confuses me. Um, but I, think, <laughs> I, I think I'm at, uh, just cause of some of the personal stuff, but Amanda Seyfried, I think is going to be one of the favorites for best actress because of this movie. Yeah. Um, I feel like everyone who's watched Mank, agrees on the fact that it is a technically impressive and very personal movie for David Fincher. And it's such a departure from what he's done beforehand. Like Gone Girl gets under your skin. It's um, horrifying and such a blockbuster, but this is so small. It feels big as well, but it's so different from literally everything he's done. And it's interesting that you say his perspective as a person who's always fought studios, because I've never really and maybe I'm a fool to not think that, but I've never really saw it from that perspective, but he really nails it in that aspect of just like doing a commentary on the studio system and making the films that he wants to make, because that's, that's what Mank was trying to do, trying to get like, be that person. I think I might've misphrased. So I don't, it's not necessarily that he's fought studios, but just like the idea that he above all throughout his career, he's one of like, I think he's maybe like one of the last remaining like big budget auteurs, like guys that could like go get like $80 million from a studio to make something that they want to make completely within their vision. And mm-hmm. I think that what Mank does is it kind of like it romanticizes um, that aspect of the idea that like the, um, like the creatives, uh, uh, the creatives should have more say in studios. And obviously like, you know, you always like, we're thinking about this as people that both want to go into the film industry. And we have like, I want to go into the film industry as more of a numbers guy. Like the reason why oftentimes you see poor, like movies made from studios is is mainly because the studio filmmaker relationship breaks down because the studios, you know, interested in the bottom line and the filmmaker is interested in, you know, actually seeing their vision come to fruition. And I think what Mank does is kind of like, it just brings a really interesting take on that whole studio creative relationship also, just a really subtle detail I really love from the movie is um, I remember in Fight Club, Fincher talks about when um, Tyler Durden works as like a film projectionist. He yeah. talks about the idea of cigarette burns. And the whole thing is, is this film is shot completely in a black and white film. And he has cigarette burns in the top right corner um, mm-hmm. in certain parts of the film to like give the illusion that you're watching something on projector. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Oh. Good for Fincher, man. Good for Indeed. Fincher. Yeah. I gotta get that Mindhunter season three though. Seriously, yeah. I I I'm worried. We just won't. I I I hope. I think it'll happen. I hope it happens. Although I remember him saying in like interviews that like 
his focus, like, so the, like he wasn't going to make season three for like a really long time originally because his focus was squarely on Mank. And I think yeah. part of me does wonder that like the whole thing is, I think he's been trying to get Mank made for like 10, 15 yeah, years. So long. Yeah. And net- Netflix sort of comes in like, you know, after he's built up all this good world of Mindhunter and he's just sort of like, will you let me make this? And then Netflix is kind of sure. And I think Netflix is kind of, there's this trend with Netflix sort of like giving all of these big name directors kind of like the funding for the passion projects that they wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. Like even like the Irishman, I think uh, Scorsese even tried, Scorsese tried to make that movie for like 10, 15 years. Oh yeah. And origin like originally, like he was going to do it when De Niro was younger and, and it didn't require like two to $300 million worth of de-aging technology. <laughs> and then by the time it got to like 2015, 2016, and Lolo becomes a thing and he's like, hi, do you want to give me like $150 million to like make a movie with like actors that are like 90 years old, and make them like 40. Uh, most studios are like, no. And then Netflix was like, yes. And then even like, I think the, uh, the cost of the movie ballooned to like almost, I think it was 250. Over 200. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> and Mank itself, I think was over a hundred million dollars. No way. You think Let me so? See. I got to check. I eat. There's so much set dressing in that movie that had to have yeah. cost so much money. Imagine if they shot on film. Yeah. It would have um, oh, wait. everything. Oh, I guess it no, I guess it is a much smaller budget movie than I than I thought. Um it, it is twenty it, so only twenty to thirty million, but even then for a movie like Mank, that's a lot. Yeah. That that's a lot of yeah. investment from a studio for sure. And and yeah. gotta give props to Netflix for giving these creators such such freedom with, with these projects because they wouldn't have been made without it like roma like given the attention and the care like uh props to netflix like okja that's a thing that never would have been made if if netflix was not like giving throwing money at people like seriously they are in so much debt though netflix will always be in debt (laughs) yeah it's interesting with like most streaming services i think most streaming services except for amazon because you know they're bankrolled by the amazon corporation is like most like Netflix, I think has only turned a profit in like one quarter of its entire existence. It's this, it's like all of these, again, not to like make this a business podcast, but like a lot of these like internet startups, specifically streamers and even like, you know, other companies, like most of these companies maybe see like one, two quarters of profit or like even turnover because they're spent, they're throwing so much money at content and technology. Like Netflix specifically, I think it was like, I, they're, I, I didn't even, I, I forget the article off the link it to you after this, but like they're throwing like almost like $400 million a year at just new content. I, definitely more just than quanti- that. You know, in some cases there's an argument to be made like quantity over quality. Some of the stuff that Netflix is putting out isn't necessarily the greatest, but yeah. when it hits, it hits, you know? Maybe I should pitch my stuff to Netflix. Maybe they'll approve it because they're just throwing money. They're throwing everywhere. money at everyone, man. It's worth a shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. I wonder how they even approve this shit, dude. They just say, go do it yeah ah okay well that's kind of off topic but props to netflix for making a shit ton of movies on the list this year and being the a1 like homie mvp for (laughs) for film in 2020 (laughs) seriously jeez okay so wait you just said mank yeah okay was that what number was that for you i think that was let me look at my i had it yeah it's my number three yeah that was my number three okay so so my number three is Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Oh, excellent pick. I only watched this movie yesterday, but I spent so much time thinking about it afterwards. So basically the premise is just, um, what's her name? Jesse Buckley. Mm -hmm. And um, is it Jesse Buckley? It is Jesse Buckley. Um, Okay. Because I got confused with Jesse Buckley and Jesse Jesse Plemons. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not confusing. But just them going to their parents' house and 
oh, this is not really a movie that you explain the premise of because it's no. nowhere near the, um, the, the advertising that I've seen. It's just yeah. such a crazy, odd, out there movie that plays with the thoughts of like suicides and relationships in a way that could not be perceived by anyone else besides Charlie Kaufman. Kaufman. I mean, yeah. this screenplay and the way he directs, he's such a good director. Like what is absolutely incredible. And so creative and full yeah. of possibility. Like oh people could interpret this movie in so many different ways. And it's weird because it's, upon like a rewatch like it plays so straight in a way but there's so much thought put into every sound every frame every like piece of production design like charlie kaufman just really outdid himself with this movie and i'll be thinking about it for like years to come yeah like this movie will just age like a fucking fine wine it's really incredible what he does with like just being inside of the mind of um, yeah. the sad person this movie ultimately um, also jesse plemons is just such a delight so everything oh i God. see him in like i it's he's he's another guy where like he's in just such a weird combination of things like i think the last three things i remember Je- jesse plemons from are this um so i'm thinking of anything uh, directed by charlie kaufman vice where he plays the um weird like he plays the narrate he narrates vice um i, I totally he, forgot about that yeah and it's absurd he he plays this like whole absurdist narrator character and then um, El Camino. Those, yeah. are the last, those are the last three things I remember Jesse Pones from. And the range with those roles is just, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely one of the best like, character actors working today. And an absolute delight to be on the screen whenever. But this is probably his best. This is his best performance. He probably, shows the most yeah. range in this movie. And he brings his character to such crazy different places. And same with Jesse yeah. Buckley. Like I'm not fully aware of this actress prior to this movie, yeah. but she knocks it out of the park and is absolutely incredible in such a curious, like she doesn't even know where she is in this. Like her character doesn't even know where she is, what she's doing throughout the whole entire movie. And yeah. she just nails it, nails the whole entire thing. And everything in this movie is so deliberate and particular it's crazy i don't know what you have to say about this movie um so jesse buckley i wasn't like super familiar with um prior to seeing i'm thinking of anything is either but um so i remember her mainly she uh she plays the fireman's wife in chernobyl if you watch Mm. chernobyl i need to watch chernobyl it's on oh chernobyl's a completely different conversation absolutely (laughs) killer she's killer in that um and she's also in season four of fargo um which is just she's she's been on a bit of a journey to like get here per se um and it's really cool to see her work with someone like Kaufman because I think this is going to bring her career to new heights in the same way that oh, yeah. it's going to bring Jesse Plemons's to new heights. Um, I don't really want to, like, I feel bad not talking about this movie that much, but I don't want to say too much if uh, the audience hasn't seen it because it's just so bananas. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. want to, there's, I, can, I don't want to give anything away because that would be a disservice to people that haven't seen this movie. Yeah, I, I feel like I low-key said too much, but who knows? Like it's people okay. can interpret this it in happens. different ways. Exactly. But yeah. well, what's your what's your next movie? Um, so my uh, so my number my number two actually. Um, <laughs> Which we both said our number ones already. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's okay. So my number two, I guess this is I guess this is the culmination is uh, a documentary film called Boy State. Um, Interesting which I think choice. Is one of my one of my favorite documentaries I think I've ever seen. I think my favorite uh, my favorite documentary of all time is still Food Inc. Um, 
but or uh, it's either food inc or 13th but boy state is in that conversation for me just because it's such so the premise of boy state um for those for those of you who don't know is every year i think it's the american legion sponsors this organization uh these events called boy states which is essentially like a mock government that a bunch of like uh like really you know academically accomplished young men sort of run and a sort of like you know like mock congress mock presidential election um, or it's mock governor, gubernatorial election. It's like, it's to mock a state government, which is hence why it's called boy state. Mm. And so these two filmmakers, um, I forget, I, again, I, I should remember their names. Um, but basically these two documentary filmmakers decided to, and I think it was the 2019 boy state, um, decided to follow three separate candidates for, uh, governor, which is like the highest office in this mock government. So they follow these, uh, three different candidates for governor. Um, one of which is, uh, his name is Steven Garza. He's a um, child of immigrants. He's, he's a first generation college student at the University of Texas now. Um, and the other, I forget the name of, because I was so invested in Steven's story. Um, but essentially, you watch these kids that are essentially, like they're all running these campaigns and everything. And it gets so out of hand so quickly because, I mean, they're young adults. So you can't necessarily expect them to keep their cool all the time. And there's so many parallels to the current political conversation around the way elections and campaigns are run in this country and like the undercutting and the backstabbing and everything and seeing it among 17 to 18 year old men and then thinking about what you see in the news and thinking about what you hear about with like people that are over the age of 45. Um, it's insane. Also, um, all of these, all of these kids, like, again, they're all, they're all in our age range. All these kids are so, incredibly accomplished and so well-spoken at such a young age and they come from such a diverse group of backgrounds that it's just really interesting to see them talk about again it's not even like some of it is like uh, some of it is conversations about american politics but a lot of it is just sort of like how you act around other people um and yeah that's dope i haven't seen the movie yet yeah honestly it wasn't even like on my radar i i, I knew of it I heard like the buzz from the film festival circuit, but I didn't really like go out of my way to say, Oh, I'm, I want to see this movie. But now I really do want to see this movie because this seems honestly really interesting from the way that you were talking about it. I was adding yeah. it to my watch list when you're, you started talking because yeah. like, yeah, yet another wow. um, just really, again, yet another history making movie. I think it, it is the most, I think a documentary has uh, it's the highest, uh, highest amount for a documentary paid from Sundance. I think uh, Apple TV, Apple paid, I think it was like 12 to $13 million along Shit. with partnered with it or no. So a 24, so a 24 it, I think, and then Apple acquired it, uh, the exclusive distribution for it for like almost like uh, over $10 million for a documentary, wow. which is also unheard of again. That, just is, really, that is unheard of. Yeah. Again, prior to, you know, the pandemic happening and everything, I think it would have gotten theatrically same way with Palm Springs. It was just a really big year for um, festivals in general. Just like, I mean, there's always money being thrown at festivals, but this year was just kind of something else. Like, yeah, geez. Yeah, dude. It's going to be interesting going forward to see like how the distribution model changes after Sundance this year. And if there's going to be a huge focus with indies within streaming the same way that it was this year, this that's year. going to be super, super interesting to see. Yeah. But my number two movie is Pixar's soul. Oh, <laughs> so awesome. basically it's soul. this Excellent. Yeah. jazz pianist who dies um, on the brink yeah. of his um, big break. And this movie absolutely floored me. After watching this movie, I, I thought about it for a very long time, longer than I have for a movie 
in the past like five years really because just the way this movie wrestles with the ideas of life purpose and what we're actually meant to do here and how we how we are to perceive the earth while we are living is so deep and like philosophical and just like unlike anything pixar's really made or anything i've really seen because rarely do you see a message like this portrayed in such a creative way it's kind of like a la Don Hertzfeld's like World of Tomorrow. It looks yeah. feels like that in some ways. Yeah. But yeah, I was wrestling a lot with I, like the um, purpose aspect because I'm such like a a driven dude, primarily because I want to yeah. be part of the film industry. I want to achieve this dream. I've never really thought of like uh, kind of spoiler territory, but like what it means if we get there and it's not what, what you expected. Pres- yeah, that's yeah. a haunting reality. That's Jeez. so fucking terrifying. This is not a kid's yeah. movie. This no, is not a kid's not. movie at it's, all. <laughs> it's maybe the most existential thing I think I've seen Pixar make um, aside from like Up, which is really it's terrifying. Like I think Pixar, because for me, I had, um, I, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't put Soul in my top 10. I think it probably would have, uh, would have been on the lower side just because I also think that um, I did have some issues with like probably like the last 20 minutes of the movie because I think Pixar as a studio has changed so much in the past 10 to 20 years in the way that they're making movies and the way that Disney is utilizing them. But uh, for me, Soul kind of represented a return to form for Pixar just because like, I think I remember Onward, which was one of the uh, Onward, which was actually no Onward. I take that back when I said Fantasy Island was the last movie I saw in a theater. I think Onward was because I remember seeing Onward and kind of thinking um, Pixar had kind of lost it a bit. Um, So Onward was uh, this sort of like fantasy comedy film that they made that kind of felt like a DreamWorks movie. And it didn't necessarily have like, it didn't have the same. It just didn't have that oomph. It didn't have the same like emotional heft that I think something like Soul, uh, Soul has. Like some, like the idea that it is an animated film that frankly is dealing with subjects that, should not like you wouldn't necessarily be wanting to talk to your kids about like you're not gonna sit in the back of the car and like have a conversation with your kid about like oh what do you want to do when you're older and like the existential dread of not necessarily being able to follow your dreams yeah (laughs) yeah dude this is really not a movie for kids and it's honestly a a dangerous movie and it's a weird way to describe that about like a pixar animated movie (laughs) yeah it like that's the last 20 minutes are what kind of like floored me a little because I was like, what are you trying to say to me? That's why I was wrestling with this movie for so long. Because right yeah. after this, like, what? That's That message is awful. And I was like, yeah. then I sat on it a little bit. I was thinking about the whole entire thing, the yeah. way that everything really did have a purpose and the character's arcs did feel so fulfilling. I was like, okay, you've made your argument in a pretty, pretty effective way. Yeah. And I have no, I have to respect that. Yeah. And it's just like really puts a lot into perspective from a, for like people like us who are so driven, like there's more to life than our ambitions. But yeah, obviously I'll still like keep on grinding when it comes to my ambitions. But if that shit doesn't come through, Work like, out. Yeah. I, I still got something like yeah. this life has so much to offer. And yeah, and that's kind of a beautiful message. Not really one that I would tell my kids ever, yeah. but interesting of like Disney to spend like $200 million creating a movie about not following your dreams, which is kind of the antithesis of like, disney in general it's so like interesting just as a movie and it's a miracle that it was made in the first place pete doctor is probably like pixar's a1 best right their best export yeah Yeah. oh my god i literally can't imagine like if he didn't make up or inside out like them actually letting him make make a movie this yeah 
crazy and out it's really not a kid's movie like, yeah. like yeah. I, I can see like a kid enjoying like the second act and just being confused the rest of it which is so weird yeah yeah. Like this is not a kids movie. Like the this, the soul yeah. stairs that's so like haunting, bro. Like what the fuck, <laughs> yeah. dude? Jesus. I I don't know. I, I wish I had I I wish I watched it with little kids to see how they would react because they would laugh like probably five times. It's not like the funniest movie like either. It's just like Yeah. A, a lot of thought for sure. Yeah. Wait, did did we go over all our movies? I think we have. Yeah. That's crazy. Okay. So yeah, no, it's been actually a pretty good movie uh movie or yeah in general yeah and i'm i'm really happy with my list right now so far but i saw a few ways to go i saw obviously one night man i'm promising young woman and like first cow and mangrove before like i make something certain but yeah no i'm pretty happy with my list and it's so crazy because our lists are so different yeah (laughs) yeah i remember we were talking about how our um top 10 for the decade was like super similar yeah but our top 10 for the year is literally like it's not night and day. We do have a few similarities, but like, yeah. it's crazy to see like the differences. Yeah. Because absolutely. there are so many different avenues to watch movies and like lanes just to, to yeah. view stuff. It's, it's interesting, but do you have a list when it comes to music or? Um, I have. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'd say well, let, let's just go over that really quick. Okay. Um, so let, let's probably... just say our top tens and just like talk about yeah. them afterwards. Okay. okay. So okay. I'd say, so my top 10 um, in no particular order so I have uh, Mordecai by Karangdin. I have Limbo by nice. Mine. I have uh, Misanthropocene uh, by Grimes. Fire. Yeah, I have Man on the Moon 3 by Kid Cudi, which is a little bit of a late inclusion, but really just blew me away. I have Shore by Fleet Foxes, Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa, Fetch the Bolt Cutter, uh, Cutters by Fiona Apple, Happy Hours by The Weeknd, uh, Punisher by Phoebe Bridgers. And, um, you know, even though this isn't in any particular order, I think my favorite of the year was probably Alfredo by Freddie Gibbs. And my honorable mention would probably go to um, it, Folklore and Evermore, like a double feature. And I've never really been a particularly big Taylor Swift fan, but it really just yeah. like kind of moved me over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it turned it, it turned it, it converted me per se, not fully, but like it, it did something. It did something. Yeah. Yeah, no, seriously. Um, okay. So let, let me just say mine before like diving into yeah. that stuff. Yeah. I just was writing them down. Like, I got you. Yeah. Okay, so my top 10 is, um, this is in order, though. Yeah, I got you. Um, 10, Whole lot of Red, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, <laughs> Visions of Bodies Being Burned, Clipping, From King to a God, Conway the Machine, Eternal Take, Lil Uzi Vert, Sawayama, Rina Sawayama, um, Song Machine Season 1, Strange Times, Gorillas, How I'm Feeling Now, Charlie XCX, Ugly is Beautiful, Oliver Tree, and number one, Run the Jewels 4, Run the Jewels. I'd say we got, I mean, I'd say the, I'd say the album lists are night and day. Run the Jewels 4 was definitely really close to making that 10 for me. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I really love Run the Jewels 4 because, um, I don't know, like when it was released, it was right in the midst of the Atlanta protests and like yeah. the George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement. And it just hit in a crazy way. You know, like Walking in the Snow where he just yeah. speaks from the perspective of Eric Gardner. Yeah. And just listening to that on the day it came out wow dude like killer mike dude my mind was Jeez. going all over the place yeah i know like, they um they released it earlier than expected too i think it wasn't expected for like another month and they released oh, really? it because of the um oh my god sorry i i i my apologies um uh they released it in uh they released it like earlier than expected as a result of the protests and it hit it uh it hit immediately i will say um 
I love Charlie X, uh, Charlie XCX record as well. It didn't like quite make my top 10, but that was really fun. I'd say another honorable mention for me was, um, a thousand gecks in the tree of mysteries, uh, specifically <laughs> so for fun. that Charlie, that Charlie XCX, the Charlie XCX feature on, I think it's, um, uh, I think ringtone. it's ringtone is yeah. just killer. It melted me. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I love that record. I actually, yeah, I got it right here. <laughs> like what? Yeah, no, this record is bonkers. And like, I have it. I just bought it. Oh my. Really. Yeah. I'm- killer check the shit out like the cover art is absolutely like out of this world and so flamboyant just out there but yeah you have a pretty good list too um yeah. i did like miss anthropocene like fire future nostalgia was one of my biggest surprises coming yeah. into this year i didn't expect something that grandiose and just like fun and ah like dua lipa kind of the goat for that vegetable cutters yeah. obviously like literally fiona apple like knocked it out of the park with that one so intimate one of a and, kind. yeah like the minimalist production is oh it's so alluring and enticing the whole entire record yeah. limbo amine pops to you man like that that record is absolutely something else it's right outside my top 10 for sure Pre- yeah. definitely my number 11 after yeah. i was also pretty incredible record to make my top 10 though alfredo also right out of my top 10 like yeah Freddie Gibbs and the Alchemist really coming through with a record that is so fire. <laughs> like yeah. seriously. Jesus Christ. I will say, I think the, re- um, like looking at my list again, um, I think the biggest surprise, uh, f- surprise for me of the year was uh, the Karangun record. I don't know how familiar you are uh, with Karangun. Um, they're a, they're a funk band out of Texas. And the whole thing is I'd never really heard their stuff before. And they popped up. Um, I think, yeah, one of my friends told me about the record and I think it came out like uh, midway through the year. And it was, it's just this really interesting fusion of genre. They're like really- What's worth the record it. called? Um, it's called Mordecai. Um, and then Karangbin is, um, I, if you search Mordecai, it should, I think it should. Oh. Come. Yeah. Um, but they have this really interesting uh, fusion of uh, just gen- like genre and um, sound from like different parts of the world. Because the whole thing is, is like the band members, the band was initially formed because all these people met and bonded over their love of like um, Eastern music and like Afghani music. And the whole thing is, is like they take- um, American funk music and sort of cross it with this Eastern sound. So like uh, stuff from like uh, music from Afghanistan, um, just music from uh, music from the East that you just wouldn't typically hear in an American funk record. That sounds super, super exciting. Yeah. I, I just started on, um, yeah, I just hearted it on my Spotify. So I'm going to listen to it whenever that sounds like a super interesting record. I'm just curious. What are your thoughts on whole lot of red? <sighs> So my feeling, okay, I'm going to be really blunt. I feel like Cardi just dropped to drop. I understand that, you know, he's, this is something he's probably been working on for a really long time. And the song, I forget the song, the name of the song with the Kanye feature actually goes really hard. I am more of a person where I think, like, I'd probably like Cardi a hell of a lot more live just because of the fact that he's so... Like, yeah, way- no, this is definitely a mosh pit album. Yeah. Like the whole entire thing through and yeah. through. Yeah, the way the music, uh, like the way the music sounds, it's just something I'd probably want to hear live. Like, because the whole thing is, is like, he sort of represents the, like the idea that like trap music, like trap shows and trap music is like kind of like the punk of today, especially like if you're looking at that album cover for Die Lit. But it just didn't really, it didn't, didn't, it didn't really do anything for me because I'm already not like a huge, like I I say this because I'm not like the biggest fan of his music already. I really like Die Lit. Um, But it feels like he just kind of dropped to drop. 
Also, like, I don't know if you saw, like, the stuff that was happening with his, like, uh, his kid. Yeah, dude, seriously. Which was just absolutely bananas. So embarrassing. And, dude, take care of your kid, dude. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But but I do really like the record. I actually really love the record. I couldn't buy it on vinyl because it's sold out on the store, stupid Cardi. But, um, yeah, yeah, I really respect the punk uh, hip-hop. Not really hip-hop. It's just, like, trap angle that he approached with this record. And there's just it's just so diverse, and it just makes me feel something. Wow. Yeah. It, it just makes me want to, like, throw shit out the window and just jump around. It, and yeah. he does it so effortlessly no one is really in this lane and cardi just like fills it yeah. with all he can in all his yeah. being it is art in the purest form should be my number one it's not that was a joke but also like yeah. i don't know there's just something about cardi and so interesting to me yeah, <laughs> so I was, alluring <laughs> i was gonna say so what were um so you've asked me for my feelings on a whole lot right what were your feelings on man on the moon three Man of the Moon 3, I think it's pretty good. I think when I first listened to it, I kind of like overrated it in my head just because it's yeah. Cuddy's return, not only to like as a solo artist, but it is also really functions as a return to form if you take away Kid Seas Ghost from his discography. I thought yeah. um, I really, really dug the second half, not necessarily the first half, the more trap influence yeah. aspect of that record. I do really like the record though. I really love the song with Phoebe Bridgers. That song is really good. I like Elsie's Baby Boy. Yeah. Um, like when Cuddy is being Cuddy, that's where I think the record yeah. really, really becomes something more than average. And Rockstar Nights, oh my God. That, I don't even, I don't even know like, how... like, it's maybe the first time I've listened to Trippy Red on something and been like, okay, I can kind of get this. I think my favorite, uh, my favorite songs are probably, I think Tequila Shots within about like two days became my most played song of the year on Spotify. Wow, I think I listened dude. to it by about 20, 30 times. Cause even like the trap stuff is so uncharacteristic of him. It just, it was such a surprising, like I, I had a, like I had maybe the smallest feeling he might go in that direction, but it was just such a surprise, such a pleasant surprise for me. Also the, um, the, uh, the song, the track with um, Stormzy, this track with Stormzy and Pops. Cause super unexpected. One, Cause number one, I think what this continues to show me is like, I, I just love I love it when American artists just randomly throw British rappers on their albums because the British rappers just consistently like it's just such a it's such a shock every single time you hear it. Like I think when um uh More Life, which I'm not a particularly big fan of, but uh Giggs is featured pretty pretty prominently across, like it's just something you're not necessarily expecting and then it just pops up and it's in your face and it's just something that you don't it's obviously like you know, you let you might listen to like um like as Stormzy's become like a more global presence, like um like grime in British hip hop just isn't yeah. something that you're going to hear with American audiences that often. So like when a guy like Cuddy's like, all right, let's just throw Stormzy here. Like it, it just, it pops. It pops smoke for sure. Yeah. Rip pop smoke, my guy. Yeah. Like seriously. Um, another person whose talent only like scratched the surface in my opinion, uh, super talented man, but yeah, man of the moon three it is a really good record. Yeah. I'll give it that it's outside my top 10, like probably in my top 20 for sure for the year. Yeah. But yeah, I'm just really excited for what Cuddy's doing next because clearly he's he's found his groove what with concerning what he wants to do with everything. Yeah. But but this has been good. Thank you for coming on. Like um I, I'm glad that we got to talk about movies and music yeah. and within the context of the worst year. Yeah, that absolutely. we've definitely Anytime, lived. Man. So um, do you have anything to plug before we go? Like, um, I think the only, I don't really have um, anything to plug at the moment. I would say I'm just like, I'm, uh, I'm in between like 
uh, creative stuff right now. Um, I would say if you are uh, a student at Emerson College, look out for some really cool stuff coming from Sports Magazine. Um, also, uh, just a really great thing to check out there. I haven't necessarily put anything new up there recently, but Fettuccine the zine is always just a really cool thing to check out. It's this um, sort of miscellaneous art zine started by a couple of friends of mine um, and I contribute on occasion. And it's just, it's just stuff that you wouldn't necessarily see like typically published in an arts magazine and it's just consistently killer. Um, so yeah, oh. that's really about it. So what's your handle? Um, so my handle on Instagram is uh, Brendan M. Walker. On Twitter, you can find me at uh, Brendan M. Walker. And um, you can also find me on Letterboxd at Brendan M. Walker, I think. Oh, <laughs> yo, I should follow you on Letterboxd. I'm going to oh, do that right after this. Send me your Letterboxd yeah. right after this. Okay. I will. Word. So that's a wrap on the Prism Podcast. I'm your host, Rodrigo Mariano. Um, my socials are at Dragonsfoe on Instagram and at Prism Official. Please follow that, of course. This is the outlet in which yeah. we do this stuff that we do. And um, thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for listening and see you next time.